Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Our guest on today's show is the author Julia Cook to talk about her book Come Fly the World which looks at some of the untold stories of the stewardesses of Pan Am. But before we get to that conversation, a reminder that you can support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is the address to go to to subscribe and you'll get lots of extra goodies and support the podcast and everything we do at Shambles. For instance, just this week, just gone up, is a one-hour special, Robin's Fireside special. It's a sort of book launch comedy special filmed around a fireside in a back garden in Northampton last year, around the time of, well, actually on the day that uh, The Importance of Being Interested came out. So that is exclusive to Patreon supporters of Cosmic Shambles and Book Shambles. So sign up and... Not only do you get extended episodes of Book Shambles, but you'll get lots of stuff like that and more Patreon goodies coming down the pipeline soon as well. Nine Lessons for Spring, the rescheduled Christmas Nine Lessons shows are happening over the Easter weekend this year, April 16 and 17 at King's Place. We've announced a bunch of guests this week that will be joining Robin on stage for those shows, including Jim Bob and Helen Chersky and Natalie Haynes and Deborah Francis-White and Mark Richards, Miranda Lowe, Matt Parker and plenty more. CosmicChambers.com slash nine lessons is where you'll find all the details for that. And obviously follow us at Cosmic Shambles on Twitter or check out CosmicShambles.com for all the other stuff we've got going on. And now here is this week's episode. Here is Robin and Julia. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Yet again, uh, Josie's not here. Uh, but it's maternity leave is, I'm as far as I'm concerned, it's a cast iron alibi. Uh, hopefully she'll be back soon. And uh, today, I, I think she'll be, there's the certain authors that she's more disappointed than others when she's not able to do the podcast. And I think that today's author uh, has written a book that's on such a, when you first see it, you might not realise quite where it's going to go. And you might expect it to be something that it, occasionally is but many things also that it's not uh because uh, the book is about air stewards it's uh about pan am air stewards who were of course the always seen as the most uh glamorous they are. i think we did a podcast a while ago where it turns out the wheelie suitcase that had existed for a long time but been rejected one of the reasons the wheelie suitcase suddenly became as big as it is now was because once people saw those who were as glamorous as both the captains of pan am flights and the stewards of pan am flights with a wheelie suitcase suddenly everyone wanted them uh so the book is come fly the world world uh, and we're joined by the author Julia Cook. Hello Julia. Hi thank you so much for having me. It is that air steward thing because w when I first started looking at your book uh, my my mum who uh, would have been born in 1939 and in the 1950s I still have I wish I could show them to you they're, they're, they're at my dad's house but all of her scrapbooks of images of air stewards you know the two scrapbooks she had was one all about audrey hepburn the others about her dream of being an air stewardess and it really in the in the 50s and beyond it it, it was it, I, it's hard to, to put it into words just how much of an ambition it was 
It's fascinating. Did she ever become one? No, she never did. She she worked for a while instead in a theatrical agency. So she'd see Alec Guinness in a lift every now and again. And Cary Grant used to say, hello, girls. Uh, oh, poor so, thing. Wow. So she still got, you know, there was still a few <laughs> treats. Now that's glamour. Um, yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Um, that angle is not necessarily what brought me to this subject, but it was fascinating once I started researching it to just realize quite how deeply um, this job really did capture the imagination of this rising new sort of woman. Um, it, it really presented these opportunities for, for travel, for self, um, you know, self-realization, for exploration, um, and for involvement in the world in a way that was completely unprecedented, um, especially when you hold it alongside uh, the other roles that were kind of socially sanctioned for, for young women, um, like secretary or teacher or nurse. Uh, really, stewardess was just as acceptable and just offered such an explosion of opportunity alongside those ones. See, that's what interests me because I wondered what angle you went in initially at, whether the direct, because you are uh, the child of a former Pan Am exec. So I, I came at the story of this book from a strange angle. Um, you're right. My dad did work for Pan Am until I was nine, which was how old I was when the airline went under. But really the um, Pan Am itself was just kind of a, a, a vehicle for my family's travel, at least within our family lore. Um, I grew up uh, hopping onto standby planes and going to different places with my parents who were just completely, uh, they were really, really determined to kind of squeeze every possible travel benefit out of um, Pan Am that they could. So we, we traveled a lot when I was a kid, um, but really I had not thought a whole ton about the airline, um, especially certainly not from a professional perspective uh, until about eight years ago when um, I went, I was casting about for a new subject for my next book. I had just published a book of narrative uh, reporting on youth culture in Cuba. And I was you know, thinking, I'm not really sure what I want to write about next. And it was actually my husband's idea uh, that I start thinking about Pan Am. He was like, you know, you guys all talk about Pan Am um, all the time, just in terms of your, your, what you grew up doing, how you grew up traveling. Might there not be something of interest there? I have no idea what it might be, but just, you know, check it out. So, um, so I started going to events, just random events that the Pan Am Historical Foundation was hosting. Uh, the first one I went to was at the TWA terminal uh, at JFK. I don't know if you know the, the building I'm talking about, but it mm, is yeah. this beautiful, beautiful structure by Eero Saarinen. And I, I really went because I just wanted to see the building. Um, and once I got to this event, uh, which was the 50th anniversary commemoration of the Beatles first landing in New York, actually, uh, I just wound up talking to these two women the whole event long. And I found them fascinating. They were just the most interesting women I'd ever met. Um, I said at some point that I really wanted to go upstairs and see the balcony. And this woman just took me by the hand. And even though there were velvet ropes, um, you know, ac limiting access, she just slipped around them and, and went upstairs. And she seemed to really respect no authority, but she was also incredibly sophisticated and, and, and really smart seeming. And she talked about events of world history with this level of really calm um, intimacy and authority that I found just completely captivating. And I thought these women were the most interesting women I'd ever met in my life. And I really just wanted to know everything about them, which is how it all started to happen. That's great. That's the perfect way to start a book. I want to know everything about you. So then I'm going to start typing it out afterwards. Exactly. To have that, because it is, I mean, what, what, 
I, I think will surprise people when they first pick it up in the shop is realizing you know how much of it is uh, about Pan Am's involvement uh, in, for instance, flying people do you know during the Vietnam War and also I mean there's an incredible bit where you talk about you know I, I forget which which one of the stewards it was where she talks about the fact that you know one day it's the pilots just there saying and on your right you can see the Viet Cong and then the next day on the right you know on the left you you can see a napalm drop. Yeah, you know, that was one of the things that first stunned me about these women. Um, you know, I, I I said that of these two women, I found them really appealing. I thought the, the combination of sophistication and also really um, knowledgeable, knowledge of politics, um, knowledge of foreign, for, foreign cities, knowledge of, of cultural um, habits and, and the ways that different people interact all around the world based on customs. Um, I, I found that level of knowledge to be really interesting. Um, I also found the the dichotomy between the glamour and the grit of what they were doing to be really fascinating. You know, they, they were they were put in these positions where they were flying in and out of war zones, active war zones. They were flying soldiers into combat, and yet they were really uh, expected to do all of this with this veneer of effortlessness and glamour um, that they were expected to uphold at all times. So that that dichotomy I found fascinating, and that that um, that level of expectation uh, I found really interesting, and I wanted to understand um, what would have motivated these women to to do that. Because there is the, there's there's such a contrast in that. You know, when you're reading about the situation of here are, you know, even even the, the, the stewards themselves, they talk about the fact they were in their late 20s. But these soldiers, they look they look like kids. These were people in their late teens. They were 20, you know, early 20s. And just that, the, you know, one thing that really stuck with me, just that line about, you know, and there they were asking for a second helping of ice cream. Absolutely. Those, you know, sometimes those what might seem quite mundane details, which are the details which I think truly heighten, you know, show the the true jeopardy of of what was going on and the true horror in a certain way. Absolutely. You know, it it still gives me chills when I think about just the sheer youth of those planes. That was the first thing that really um, stunned me, just to think about how young these women were. Uh, As you're saying, they were in their mid 20s, late 20s. Uh, and the soldiers were so much younger. Um, and so if you think about the fact that there was only one person, maybe two on that plane that was not in their 20s um, or teens, which was the pilot. So just just the sheer youth of that that vessel, I found really, um, it still gives me chills. It reminded me in uh, Kurt Vonnegut when he talked about Slaughterhouse-Five. And in fact, he writes in Slaughterhouse-Five that idea that the uh you know when he talks about writing the book and and one of the wives of a friend says no you'll write these you know this this book and you'll look like heroes and you were just babies you were baby and and i think you know slaughterhouse five is a great illustration of that sense of i I remember where i think vonnegut in one of his addresses to a college said you know one of his uncles or 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 it might not have been a relative who who just went ah you went to war a child and you've come back a man he said i just wanted to punch him the idea that this would be this transference from child to to, to man. We need another way to, to do that. Not Absolutely. Yeah, it was really interesting. The women that I interviewed um, had really divergent perspectives on the war itself um, and, and on their own involvement in it. You know, some of the women that I talked to uh, had a huge amount of pride, actually, in um in not just standing on the sidelines, they really felt like it was this big generational thing um, that was very, it was cataclysmic for the American population, obviously. Um, and they they really, they felt a high level of pride in, in 
being a part of it. Um, some of them were actually quite hawkish in their political perspectives. Um, others really had a, an enormous amount of ambivalence about um, participating in the war effort. You know, I talked to a lot of women who were active members of the protest movement who would go to protests in their off time um, and then fly soldiers into combat um, while they were working. And so they, they had a really hard time, um, you know, figuring out what, what that made them um, and, and, and how they felt about it. Um, and really processing what we now understand to be trauma. So how many voices were there originally? I mean, obviously, you've ended up with with, with, with five particular voices uh, running through this book, but I presume during the research time and during the, and there must be many people that I mean how how did you start the process after meeting uh, those two at the TWA building how did you then build up the process after that of of communicating with more so i could say it really glibly and just say um i crashed a lot of parties um, I, I went to a lot of a lot of luncheons and um uh, the the world wings international which is the the former stewardess association um uh, they have conventions every year. So they had one in Bangkok and one in Savannah um, while I was re doing my research. And I, I would just go to these conventions and, and just talk to everyone that I could. Um, and I would take down numbers and, and email addresses. And then I would have conversations in the moment. And then when I got back from those trips, I would then call them again and, and do a, a second interview, uh, you know, not say on a cruise down the, the Bangkok River um, while drinking wine. Uh, so, uh, we would have much more formal interviews to follow that up. Um, and I, I, I interviewed, um, oh gosh, I, I don't even know many dozens of women, um, from that era. Uh, and at first it was really pretty freeform and, and wide ranging. I, I knew that there were certain subjects that I wanted to cover. Um, I, I, and the Vietnam war was one of them. Uh, but also, you know, I really wanted to talk about, uh, Pan Am's involvement in, in the USSR. Pan Am, uh, really opened up. Uh, American diplomacy towards the USSR in um, the late 1960s by opening flights from New York to Moscow. So I wanted to talk to some women who had um, studied in in uh, Moscow, side note, being that um, not enough women were Russian qualified. So Pan Am ran its own language courses in Moscow for, for women uh, to get accredited and then begin to fly the Moscow routes. So uh, I found that fascinating and I knew I wanted to cover that. Um, there were other angles that I knew I needed to um, talk about, uh, the racial integration of the airline um, and the airline industry in general in the late 60s um, and women's movement into management um, and, and you know, uh, the, the degree to which Pan Am in particular was um, a, a vehicle for a kind of informal sort of diplomacy. So, you know, as I was interviewing, I was just kind of um, really in a very free form way, kind of collecting these different um, angles or stories that I knew I needed to include. Um, and then, as, you're, as you said, uh, five specific women really kind of floated to the surface um, and their stories really seemed to, to encapsulate most of what I wanted to talk about. I'm interested there's a, a, an interesting kind of what can seem like a clash of ideologies, obviously, because to some extent you have this idea of the transformative nature uh, and 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 the empowering 
that happens uh, for, for, for many of these women. But at the same time, we also have the other side, which is, you know, the, the, the grooming courses, uh, all of the, you know, all, all of the, the, the different rules and regulations, the fact that you could be chucked out at 32 or 35, the kind of way that your private life, well, not exactly, but at least your marriage stays, all of, so it's an, it's an interesting battle and the, and the way that you kind of deal with both sides of that. I mean, what was your, your initial reaction when you see those two sides? Trying to get that oh balance gosh. must have been difficult. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's um, as you're saying the 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 reality of the job, especially in the early '60s, um, was just frank objectification. Um, it was the 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 requirements were deeply sexist. Um, they women had to be a certain height and weight. They had to meet certain physical beauty standards, which were very patriarchal. Um, really adhered to very stereotypical notions of feminine white beauty. Um, they uh, they had to they you know, go to these grooming classes. They all had to have the same kind of haircuts and wear the same kind of you know very wholesome looking makeup. Um, and they they had to be under twenty six when they were hired, and they had to quit if they got married. Um, and that was partially because airlines really wanted their stewardesses to project this air of um, availability. Uh, they wanted their mostly male um, clientele to to be able to kind of imagine that they might date. A stewardess and so to have a married or certainly a pregnant stewardess um, would just not really meet that um, and yet at the same time what they were offering what the airlines were offering these women was this level of freedom um, and you know movement and accessibility to these different places these different locations of the world that was really unprecedented um, on pan am in particular part of the reason why i wanted to focus on pan am was because um, Pan Am also had a whole different level of requirements for its stewardesses, um, which was very intellectual. You know, these women had to speak two languages. They had to have gone to at least some college um, and they had to really be able to think on their feet and problem solve um, on the go. They were, their interviews really, um, interviewers really tested them on on their problem solving abilities and their, their um, yeah, their ability to put things together in movement and under pressure um, and without breaking a sweat. Uh, so the, uh, the statistic that I found really revealing was that um, in the mid-60s, uh, I think 6 to 8% of American women had gone to college and graduated from college. Um, and a full 10% of Pan Am stewardesses had gone to graduate school. So these were an incredibly select uh, and very well-educated uh, group of women. So again, that dichotomy to me, I found really compelling. Um, they had to really put up with a high degree of constraint and um, stereotyping, but what they got in return seemed to be um, a really high degree of freedom. So I, I found that really interesting. And yeah, you're right. It was a really weird line to kind of walk and try to understand from the vantage point of today yeah it's very it's because i always find when i'm traveling around in, in the science shows and stuff that, that all the stewards i meet are incredibly smart and incre you know that, that a lot of that objectification because there's a the other side which is you'll always hear someone in one cabin or the go oh yeah i think you're on there yeah because she smiled at you as if you go no, no no that's what people do when they bring you a thing you know that but that but that it does seem that somewhere in all of that myth that in the 50s and 60s advertising even now in the 21st century you will will 
I say even oh yeah it, it's, it's incredibly pervasive you know and and that was part of so it, what, what was most interesting and I mean not most interesting there were probably seven incredibly interesting aspects of this research but one of the really interesting parts of my research was understanding the degree to which that um that kind of uh that sexual stereotyping was orchestrated by the airlines um because in the 60s, uh, prices were set by the, the U.S. Civil Aeronautics Board. So um, airlines could not compete based on their fares. They had to compete based on in-flight experience. And keep in mind, the sexual revolution was happening. Um, and so they part of their experience became uh, you know, the experience of being served by these women. Um, and so uh, different airlines started to really push forward this um, stereotyping in very different ways. There are incredibly sexist, just skin-crawlingly sexist advertisements from that era, including the Braniff airstrip and National Airlines' Fly Me. This is late 60s, early 70s um, uh, that this really started happening. But even back in in the early 60s, you know, there were these very innuendo-laden um, ads that were really inviting customers to to look at stewardesses as sex objects. So, you know, really, and, and over the course of that decade, as the women's movement really started taking off in the U.S., um, women really started challenging that and pushing back. And um, that, that stereotyping itself almost propelled um, women into the courts to, to, to litigate against that kind of stereotyping and against marriage requirements um, or prohibitions rather, and against, you know, weigh-ins and, um, and grooming requirements. And stewardesses in the U.S. Uh, set what we now use as legal precedent for gender discrimination uh, via these lawsuits. So really all of that sexist stereotyping um, only brought about its, its own demise. Yeah, the weigh-in thing is the one that I think that I know a few people who've read your book, and that's the point they get. What you actually weighed in, like a, you know, the, the it's incredible to think about. Yeah, they were put on a scale every couple months. What did you find? It, it's because Pan Am, as you say, you know, one of the things it would say was we represent America, and 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 all of the women working there, they represent America. Did you find as you researched that you also saw that? what the America that they wanted represented changed or did the core values pretty much in terms of the airline itself stay reasonably intact from the early 60s? Um, the one, you know, on, on the one hand, I would say that it stayed reasonably intact. Uh, it still is pretty imperialist. Um, well, P Pan Am, you know, no, no longer exists as, as and everyone, I would assume that most of your listeners um, some know actually, but some people I've found have no idea what Pan Am even was, that it was, you know, this huge American airline that was very international and, and it, and it went under in 92. Um, so, you know, by the time it ended, um, it still did really, um, have many of the same values, um, just in terms of, um, American dominance on some level, uh, and, you know, involvement in foreign, um, affairs. But in terms of how its crews were representing um, America, certainly the, the the racial requirements changed enormously over the course of the 60s and 70s. Um, in the 50s, uh, airline executives were very open about only wanting white women um, and then selective kind of um, groups of, of ethnic minorities that they found um, appealing, shall we say. Um, they would kind of deign to... to um, uh, hire a group of, say, Japanese-American women 
um, who they wanted to, to become a part of their crews. Uh, but over the course of the 60s, that did shift enormously, um, helped in part by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, which, which forced airlines in the US to start hiring um, black women and women of color. Uh, and so over the course of that, that changed enormously. And then the other thing that changed enormously was um, they started hiring men. In the 50s, uh, airlines really exclusively hired women in, into the 60s as well. And in um, 1972 actually was the landmark case that, that um, forced airlines to begin to hire men as well. So, you know, um, what had been in the 1950s and early 60s, uh, a really primarily white, uh, exclusively female uh, group of, of cabin crew was by the late 70s, uh, no longer exclusively white and no longer all women. And what, um, in terms of your traveling more broadly, because you, you are a travel writer and you've uh, um, obviously, as you said, since you were a child, what inspires the places that you want to go to? What, what is it that you, in terms of, because I'm fascinated, I've not read your book about a youth culture in Cuba, but that, for instance, as a, as, as a, as a you know, where, where did that story start? Is it just because you're gregarious at parties in various different airport buildings and you constantly... Uh, yeah, definitely. No. <laughs> um, you know, my, my work in Cuba... So I've, I've realized that all of my books, um, I'm now working on my next book, and I've realized that it, all of my books are kind of born out of um, something that I find interesting, that I understand that that the, the record does not really reflect accurately. Um, so, you know, with, with Cuba, it was, it was that... Um, I had actually I'd studied abroad in Cuba when I was in college, and I felt like the Cuba that I got to know there was not at all the Cuba that I read about in newspapers or um, you know saw in films um, when I had come back to the U.S. So I kind of felt like you know youth culture that I had participated in was not being represented um, in the media, and I, I wanted to correct that. Um, and you know with the stewardesses, um, I really I had met these women that I found remarkable and who seemed to be me to be kind of this missing link between the feminists of today and you know the the um, the women who felt constrained by uh, professional opportunities of either nurse, teacher, secretary um, in the 50s. So that that really seemed they seemed to provide this bridge um, of feminism that, um, that had not really been contextualized in the, the mainstream feminist narrative. Um, so that, that's what propelled me to really be writing about them. Um, and my next book also is about um, a group of women um, in the early 20th century who have not really been given credit or been contextualized in the way that I think that they, they really ought to be. So I think that my, my desire to go to different places kind of stems from that also. Like I, I wanna know um, what something is really like or what some place is really like or um you know how it's different from the way that it's represented is that because i mean it's interesting when you say about because i i, I think two-dimensional you know the way that we look at so many different countries and, and we I mean we see it for instance most obviously in the difference between the reporting of uh, say an accident in uh, Europe or in an English language based country compared to something far more terrible that might happen in Africa or Asia and I think you know whether whether the country is Nigeria or Pakistan uh, or Papua New Guinea or whatever it is you will get the, the we are predominantly fed and we seem to accept two-dimensional ideas of what 
other people are like those who are furthest from us especially when you think actually how minimal the differences are uh indeed i mean it's beyond negligible the differences Mm -hmm. amongst human beings and yet we will see these you know people they're not quite the same as us are they and so do you feel that it was your traveling as a child that that had an influence on on having that opportunity to be so young and to get to to so many places that that might have opened your eyes a little bit yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think I think my upbringing was very strange and it, it really um, impacted me in so many different ways. Certainly that um, people in different places had never seemed all that different to me. Um, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I always grew up very aware that people speak differently um, in different places and, and behave differently and that, that they're not that different in essence. Um, So, yeah, I I think that's also a a kind of easy way. um, It's an easy thing for a Western traveler to to kind of to talk about. I think um, there are really profound differences. And I think growing up and realizing that and um, and kind of mining that that distance in between those two attitudes really has become um, exciting for me. What's been the most revelatory country that you've been to in terms of presumptions followed by seeing, you know, seeing it in daylight, seeing the reality? that's so hard how can i answer that question um I, we won't I, hold it to you if you change your mind afterwards you will not then be oh you said that country and then you change your mind but i know it is a really it's i might as well have said what's your favorite book um because i I, can no, I think so it's really interesting because my so I, I did a reporting trip um i went on a reporting trip to to myanmar once um and it was definitely the most dramatic reporting trip i've ever been on um kind of everything went wrong um, and that's a story for a whole nother um, podcast. There were there was a, a, a source who had been lying and who then disappeared, and I couldn't get a hold of her. Um, I got an allergic reaction. There was it was a, a horror show from start to finish. Um, and yet, uh, I met the most incredible. I had the most incredible driver um, who you know in in some place that is so completely foreign, you know, where to my, to my eye, to my expectations, where the, the habits and the, the language is so completely different and impenetrable to me. I knew nothing of, um, of Myanmar's language. Um, the religious background is totally different. The, the sociocultural context was so different. Um, and yet I had this incredible driver that I spent many, many days with, um, talking to, and, and he really helped me to understand the, the, um, you know the social political context um, so I don't know if that at all answers your question but um, but I, I found it fascinating to, to really um, dive in there where would you most like to have real time to explore hmm. I would say Morocco um, I've only been to Morocco once um, and I found it really interesting um, and I was really limited to just um, Marrakesh and, and the surrounding area. And I'd really love to be able to go back and, and um, explore the different different types of places. Yeah, Morocco's interesting because, again, about that kind of, uh, you know, very specific, the, the anglicised view. Because the moment I think of that, I think of, uh, you know, various pe- people like Paul Bowles and uh, and those kind of writers. Yes. And, and in the UK, you know, the uh, people like you, who you probably may not know, Joe Orton, the playwright, who, who would go over there to, to, to live a life that they couldn't live when they were in, uh, or, or many of them couldn't live when they were in England. And so you get very kind of, or, or Burroughs, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm reading a lot about... Um, uh, 
Hong Kong in the 30s and Shanghai in the 30s for for my next book. Um, And that's also, it's hard at this point for me to think about places that I want to go in the world um, that exist as they exist right now, because so much of my work over the last five years has been thinking about places as they have existed in history. So um, it's it's hard for me to think about where I want to go nowadays, because um, in my brain these places have kind of become layered with what they were, um, and and so it's 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 weird for me to kind of try to parse that out. So your questions are are, are very startling to me. Even my own answers are startling to me because um, because you know I might have said I would like to go to Shanghai in 1938, um, which you know would have been pretty tumultuous. But um, in my brain, um, that's kind of where 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 I'm thinking. Those damn physicists still say we're not allowed to do that. Apparently, it breaks the very laws of the universe. <laughs> it's, but that's—I I mean, I find that very interesting when you're talking about Shanghai there, which is also what you take to a place psychogeographically. That all of those those books you might have read, those those interviews from the past that you might have seen, certain images, paintings, whatever it might be, I mean that when you actually arrive there, you are still, you know, that 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 gloss is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. There is something. There are certain towns and cities that I've been to where the air feels very thick with ghosts. If you know totally. what I mean. No, and it's so interesting. I no longer really think about where I want to travel to. I have, I have, I personally have three very small children. Um, and so I don't really think about where I want to travel anymore because it feels so inaccessible to me. I think about where I want to live um, and, and where I'd like to, um, you know, right, right now and for a long time. I have really wanted to move to Lisbon. Um, and so to me, I think about different places just in terms of, um, what they might be like to really build a routine in um, and to to really um, think about impacting my kids' little brains um, and, and becoming a part of their, um, you know, the tapestry of their experience of childhood um, in the way that traveling to these different places for these different weekends um, with Pan Am was so much a part of my upbringing. I think about um, wanting to steep them in, in the real routines of a place that's not theirs. If you, when you were talking, I'm just going back to the Shanghai, that, that idea, where have you arrived, which you think has already carried with it the greatest burden of your love or fascination with it? Oh, well, Cuba is so much a part of me. Like Havana is so much a part of um, my own um, movement from adolescence to adulthood that I kind of can't um, imagine my existence without it. Um, and it, it has stopped existing like as a place for me. Um, it's kind of, it is what it is. It's so subjective, um, in my heart and in my head that, um, I, I kind of, I've thought about trying to write about it again, um, and go there and kind of do more reporting or writing. And I, I kind of conclude that I can't on some level, um, because it, it's, I, I no longer have the level of objectivity or rigor, um, in terms of contemporary observation that I would want, um, a journalist or, or a writer to really, have in a different place if I were as a reader to read about a place um, Havana has just become so much a part of my own personal history so you'd find it yeah you'd find it hard to become the alien that is required to yeah yeah and I think you know maybe if I were who knows if I could be proven wrong maybe I'll 
go on assignment at some point in five years and, and um, find it very rich or interesting to, to have it be a part of me. But, but the reality is that I spend so much time um, thinking about it um, or, or remembering um, Havana. I think Havana in particular, thanks to the political situation, um, is a place that is, um, it, it, it is it, what it is. And it is also what um, so many people who have been there and left it and who have been exiled from it um, have made it in their own memories. So as a, as a specific place, it's such a tapestry of both what it is and what it um, is considered to be or remembered to be or imagined to be. That's such a hard thing about going back. That bit, you know, so many people who are disappointed. I, I know a few people who, when they when they got to kind of old age, uh, two people who've been been brought up in Australia, and they thought that's where I'm going to go back, and they both of them didn't last a year, because they actually wanted to go back to 1958, not exactly. for political reasons, but just for the way everything and what they really wanted to go back to does could not exist because they also wanted to be 28. They wanted to be well, 28 in really 1958. Exactly. That, that's really, and that's what I think we often forget. It's like watching old TV programs or whatever it is, and you go, "Oh, I thought it was this," and you go, "It was that. It was that when you were eight, and that building meant that, and that thing was that big when you know." And I, and I think that that's always that that if nostalgia is the thing that lures you back, then it's going to be troublesome. It's, yeah, it's done. You're done before you get on the plane. It's interesting. Um, I have always, I do, I do, however, very much want to go to Havana soon because I've never been there as a, a mom. I've never been there with my kids. Um, and, uh, Cubans love kids. They're so, they, they really value babies and children and, and they're so open and giving with, um, with kids. And yeah, I have, I have a friend who had babies in Cuba. Um, who's a, a uh, she's from Europe. Um, and, uh, she told me once that she did not, she, she, she realized after she had a baby in Cuba that she hadn't really been seen in Havana until she had a kid. Um, and then she inhabited a whole different city. And so to me, there's this, there's this city that I really want to visit, which is Havana with children. Havana with children does sound like a very interesting spin-off sitcom, by the way, as well. <laughs> the, uh, it's uh um I, oh i want to also just quickly i was just thinking by the way when you, you were mentioning hong kong and uh that when you talk about the runway in the in, in your book and that was a, a thing my dad still always talks about if i ever go to hong kong he goes oh that runway and i the go it's not that runway anymore it's okay nope. <laughs> um who do you have uh i mean do, do you read much travel as well because i know some people sometimes try and avoid the, the you know the area that may well be their area of specialization yeah, I don't read that much travel. I read a lot of writers who are um, animated by travel, but who don't write specific travel writing. So um, like Deborah Levy um, or Mavis Gallant's short stories. Um, these are writers who, especially women, who are very propelled by movement and by um, you know examining different places and existing in these places, but, but travel itself is not their subject. I, well, Deborah Levy's on the top of my head. Right, I've been reading her cost of living and real estate. Um, but uh, but I've been meaning to get back into actually. So two British men travel writers who I really um, have liked a lot in the past are Bruce Chatwin and uh, Jeff Dyer, who I think um, I love how Jeff Dyer really is never exactly what he thinks he is or what what he purports to be. His writing is always about something else or or circling something else or. Um, uh, I, I find his brain very interesting in that regard. Yeah, I was just talking about him earlier with someone saying that that was uh, Jeff Dyer always worries me when I interview him because uh, I love his work so much. 
and and I think he's I think the different the the way that you know whether it's he's dealing with photography whether he's dealing with a war memorial whether he's dealing with the you know the place he goes in White Sands he is mm-hmm. uh, and being that I mean I love the fact have you ever read Zona? No. Right, Zona is his book, which is just all about Tarkovsky's stalker. So all oh, it is basically is he's just watching it. And it's it's basically a description of everything that he sees from the perspective of him, with sometimes little details about the making of the film, but predominantly it's someone just sat watching the film and saying, then the waiter comes in, he looks like the kind of man who is this, this, and that. And it's the fact that, you know, he's a travel writer inside a film, which is... That's a, a, so interesting. That's fascinating. I yeah, really I recommend say- it. A book that I've been reading recently um, is uh, by an English writer, Emily Thomas, and it's called The Meaning of Travel, which is a really interesting one um, that your listeners might find uh, interesting. I I really have enjoyed it. And it's the way that it um, the way that she really pulls uh, different philosophical traditions into um, uh, looking at what they have brought to travel or what travel has brought to philosophy. I found really interesting. Oh, that sounds brilliant. The uh, it's interesting you mentioned Bruce Chatwin. I was wondering if you because he's in a very interesting position, which is he's I don't, he's not spoken about very much now. I don't think, and his books are very cheap to pick up. Do you know what I mean? He's not become. Yeah. He, he seems to currently be in that. I, I think it'll suddenly change again. But yes, no, and you know what? I should also add that you know I'm I'm working on a book right now about. Um, a number of writers from the early 20th century. So I would be remiss to not say that among my favorite writers are um, women, Rebecca West, Emily Hahn, and Martha Gellhorn, who um, I spend a huge amount of time these days reading and thinking about, and I, I don't really get sick of. That's, uh, I always think that perspective is once you start reading authors like that, because there's a kind of double whammy of their uh, revelations, because also you realise the extra level that they are and levels that they're perpetually having to go through totally. to prize out the stories, that the, the, the walls that are constantly being built around them that they have to keep knocking down to try and find the story. Yeah. Oh, this is... Uh, Come Fly the World is out. It's out now. It's uh, it's in paperback now. I think it's been in hardback as well, wasn't it? First, yes, of all. And, yeah. And now, and now I, I think... Icon just brought it out in paperback recently, exactly in the UK. So that is uh, that is available now, and it is. It's you know, you It's a great cover, lovely cover design as well. Uh, but it is. It's interesting because I think it will lure people into it, and then they'll find there's uh, you know a lot of different stories that they weren't um, expecting, and very interesting voices that that you'll hear. Um, so uh, thank you so much for for joining us. And um, I'm I'm interested in your next book, you see, because you've been, uh, as you should be, as authors should be, nice and cagey. We know (laughs) something of the geographical locations. We know something of possibilities of of the kind of people who might be involved. But we will know no more until it becomes published. I'll see you in a couple of years. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And thank you to our producer, Trent Burton. And Josie will be back with us soon. Bye bye. Thanks very much for listening. Come Fly the World is out now, as just mentioned, from Icon Books. You can find that on Hive or the Bookseller or any of your favourite independent bookshops or other websites are available. Patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the show, get extended episodes, Robin's Fireside Special and all sorts of other stuff. Don't forget, I think I said all the stuff there. It was very strange. Uh... 
don't forget to subscribe and like and rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. Back next week with another new episode when our guest will be the brilliant Richard Coles. Have a great week. Stay safe. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Yeah.